Welcome to the ADV podcast. Today we delve into the fascinating complex field of genodermatosis and we'll be answering questions such as How is genetics changing clinical practice in dermatology? What can be achieved with gene editing? What does the future of clinical genetics look like? But before we get into that... Save the date for our upcoming symposium hosted in Seville, Spain, 18th to the 20th of May 2023. Discover the latest scientific updates across acne, pigmentary disorders, atopic dermatitis, pediatric dermatology and more. The symposium format offers you the chance to meet leaders in your specialty from all over Europe and beyond. Stay tuned for more. Professor John McGrath and Professor Regina Betts are discussing how dermatology and genetic diseases are integrated into a world of modern genomics, including a glance into the history of molecular biology, next-generation sequencing, and how genetics is becoming crucial for the accurate diagnosis of developing therapies. Regina Betts is a professor for dermogenetics at the Institute of Human Genetics at the University Hospital of Bonn, Germany. She and her group are real gene hunters that try to find genes mainly for diverse types of hair loss disorders and other skin diseases. Join us as we uncover the mysteries of genodermatosis and gain a deeper understanding of the role genetics play in skin health. Well, hello, it's fantastic that the EADV is going to be talking about genetics and we are here together, Regina. Yeah, hi, John. Greetings from Germany. Yeah, it's fantastic that we've got the chance to catch up on genetics, past, present and future, and maybe what else is going on in this amazing topic of genetics and the skin. Great. Yeah, thank you, John, for being here. It's a pleasure to have a discussion with you. And I hope that we can have some interesting uh, talks. Fantastic. So for me, uh, I guess we ought to start probably about getting into genetics. And uh, I can tell my story, but I, I think... You are one of the main leaders of genetics and dermatology across Europe and the world. So uh, for you, Regina, I'm always fascinated why you were hooked on genetics and particularly genetics and the skin. Yeah, actually, I started studying medicine and then I learned a lot of, uh, about biology and I loved genetics from the first sentence and from the first lecture on and I couldn't think about anything more or anything else than genetics. And this was really difficult because I had to study six years medicine. And I knew from the first or second year on that I would become a geneticist. And this is really hard to study all the other subjects where you're not really interested in. And when I started in genetics, it was, I came to Markus Newton's lab and he worked on hair loss disorders. And I really loved this issue and I stayed on with this. And yeah, you know, now I'm an expert in hair loss disorders. That's a fantastic story. For me, it was much more serendipitous because I always thought I was going to be a pure clinical dermatologist. And when I went for a training job in Oxford, which might have turned me into a clinical hair and nail specialist, I didn't get the job. And after that, the only thing I that was left for me as a career path was to work in an electron microscopy lab from which I then learned about blistering diseases. And then just serendipitously, it was the era of molecular genetics and blistering diseases. And I sort of slipped sideways into genetics, but it's a move like you, I very much uh, enjoyed. And it's been great uh, to discover those genes and to try and move that forward into uh, something for our patients. Yes, this is fantastic. 
and I think, John, we both experienced the time when we worked in the laboratory. We had Mike, we worked with microsatellite markers, we worked with radioactivity, and this was really a time, yeah, we, we had to do a lot of hands-on work. Absolutely. I mean, I qualified in 1985, which was the year that uh, PCR was invented. And I spent much of my postdoc life around 94, 95 uh, in Philadelphia. And in those days, it was very much manual sequencing. We still hadn't uh, cloned all the genes for various genetic diseases. It was almost the excitement of, yes, we've got another exon, another intron, this gene is getting bigger. And finding a mutation in those days was headline news. It was fast track to a nature genetics paper. So it was a huge amount of work just to get those building blocks of discovery in place. And I think for EADV members and those dermatologists thinking about the history of molecular biology, it's really been the rapid surge in new knowledge which has happened over the last 25 years. You know, we've gone from knowing nothing and doing loads of wet lab studies that took forever and a day now to both a combination of refined wet lab work and some amazing dry lab work what we mean by wet lab and dry lab if for any listeners uh, just wondering about that is wet lab refers to all the traditional stuff we do with tips and tubes and machines and stuff in the lab itself and the dry lab is all the computer stuff the bioinformatics the sorting out of data that we've all taken on and uh, somehow adapted to as well so I'm interested, Regina, just in when was your very first genetic discovery and how you felt about that at the time? How long ago was it and what was the gene that you were working on? Oh, I have really to think about that. I think the first linkage studies I was doing was in 1999. And we identified the first locus for hypotrichosis simplex of the scalp. And we could publish this linkage in the American Journal of Human Genetics, and we were so happy about this, these results. Nowadays, you could not ever think of publishing such a result in the American Journal of Human Genetics or any one of the higher dermatologic, dermatological journals. So, but at this time, this was really a big finding. And later on in 2002, we identified the gene for that together with Elon Press in Israel. That's fantastic. I mean, I remember my first gene discovery back in about 94, 95, uh, a form of junctional EB of the name of the junctional EB has changed so many times now. It used to be called generalized atrophic benign EB, epidemiolysis bullosa. Now it's just called intermediate junctional EB. And that was the discovery of the first BP180 or type 17 collagen uh, gene mutations. And that was a, a real thrill to be finding that. And we found it using a candidate gene approach, meaning that we just took skin biopsy from the patient and stained it with an antibody to various basement membrane components. And then it turned out that collagen 17 was missing from the skin. And uh, that was the gene to go after and find the mutations. But it's been fun finding it with those old techniques. But I think since probably about 2009, we've switched over to next generation uh, sequencing. and. I wonder how that's affected your uh, discovery work and, and diagnostic work. What's happened with you and next generation sequencing? Yeah, I think the nicest story I could tell from that is about Morbus Dowling-Degos disease, 
we had identified the gene for that in 2006 just by linkage analysis and then gene sequencing, carotene 5. And at this time, we thought, okay, there would be only a single gene for Morbus darling Degos. And then we realized that only about one third of our patients carried mutations in carotene 5. So we went back to the clinicians and asked them which of the remaining patients would show the same phenotype. And uh, one doctor from, from Dusseldorf, she told me, okay, here you have five patients. They all have this pigmentation, pigmentation on the extremities. And we put them on exome sequencing and got the data back. And no one was really looking immediately. So we were not so enthusiastic about that. And after having a big meeting in, in Paris and everybody was presenting next generation sequencing data, I sat down on the computer and within 15 minutes, I found five muta different or three different mutations in these five patients all in the same gene. And among them, we had two splicite and two um, nonsense mutations. So we, I was completely sure this must be the correct gene. So I had identified the gene within 15 minutes. Now, of course, it was a lot of work in advance, but this was so exciting. I really had to say, I was not sure if I, I was dreaming or not. It sounds like a real eureka moment, isn't it, really? And that first discovery, I can still remember uh, more than 20 years ago, one of the Japanese fellows in my lab, Takahiro Hamada, who just was reading manual sequencing. It was like TGC, AGC, and suddenly TGA, stop, go on. And uh, we were off with the discoveries. So there's no doubt that that uh, excitement of discovery is there. And I, I think with next generation sequencing, it's still there when you file and filter through all that data that comes up uh, in front of you, and you can still find something uh, new. We're still discovering genes for skin fragility. We're still discovering new hair genes. I think it's all very fantastic, the, the way the discovery has gone. And for dermatologists, it means that much of next generation sequencing is now just a test you can order in clinic, at least for the known uh, diseases, isn't it, where you can ask for a gene panel and so on just from a, a simple blood test that's there. I think one of the new things that I've discovered about next generation sequencing is that clinical geneticists don't seem to like us using the word mutation. Have you noticed that? Mutation seems to be a bad word nowadays in the field that we do. They like the term variant. And I suppose we have to get used to, to that sort of uh, story uh, as well. So I think for EADV members, uh, people listening into the podcast, it's very much uh, an awareness of what's happening and people need to be aware of the way we describe variants. You know, dermatologists know about reading dermatopathology reports and they read a perivascular, lymphohistic, granulomatous infiltrate, whatever, but now they have to think about variants as well. So uh, highly pathogenic, likely pathogenic, variants of unknown significance. It's a new language, isn't it, that I think everybody has to pick up and learn. And I, I'm wondering how your uh, results are moving into the diagnostic world as well. Are you finding that um, many of your discoveries have now been adopted uh, into mainstream clinical diagnostics? Yeah, so it's really difficult because in former times we found a second mutation in a known gene and we were sure this would be truly pathogenic. 
And nowadays we find mutations and then we do the grading if the mutation to find out if the mutation is pathogenic or not. And we realized it's a variant of unknown significance. And this is extremely difficult, especially if you're convinced about the phenotype. But the grading tells you something else. So sometimes we are really doubtful or I'm doubtful if this is yeah, a very logical system. But of course, I think it's necessary. But for known genes and mutations in patients where you are convinced about the phenotype, maybe sometimes you have to add your own opinion on that. I think that's right. I think what we've discovered is that some of those early discoveries that look so obvious turn out to be less obvious uh, in the in the future, isn't it really? And it's just, uh, we have to revisit a lot of the data in the past to make sure it stands the test of time. But I think there's no doubting that uh, dermatology and genetic disease is fully integrated into this world of modern genomics. And of course, it's not just these rare diseases, atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, more common diseases as well. I think everybody is starting to think genetics can be part of the stratification process towards better and more accurate therapies. But I guess we're really wanting to keep our conversation on some of those rare diseases and genetics and wondering about moving forward into discoveries into the clinic. And what do you think have been the advances in terms of your work or other patients that you come up against? How is genetics actually changing clinical practice? Anything you've really noted? Yeah, what we noted is that you can easily do gene panels. And so it's much easier to find out the real true pathogenic variant for the patient than if you do only sequencing gene by gene. Or we were sometimes surprised about finding a new mutation by doing whole exome sequencing. And that the phenotype was so variable that we hadn't thought about this gene yet. So I think this, these are really interesting discoveries. I think so. And of course, from my perspective, we've been able to take a lot of the genetic discoveries into prenatal testing and trying to expand that side of uh, the services we can offer patients too. And so that's been an extremely useful step forward as well. But one of the questions that a lot of uh, dermatologists ask me is, it's all very well that you work on these rare single gene disorders, but we don't see those sort of things in clinic. Um, uh, they say, what about more common conditions as well? Where are your genetics uh, got you in that story? And sometimes uh, they look at me, uh, Regina, and they say, uh, what a, can you tell me about male pattern baldness, for example? I don't think why, I can't think why they want to ask me such a question, but they do. So uh, you can work out the genetics of EB, but uh, what would you tell dermatologists if they ask you about genetics and baldness? Okay, there are these common disorders that are very common in the general population and male pattern baldness as well as alopecia areata or female pattern baldness. These are all these common disorders. And you can easily, easily compare them with diabetes mellitus or with high blood pressure. And they have not a single variant, they have tons, maybe hundreds or thousands of different variants in the genome 
which contribute to the phenotype. And therefore, it is so difficult to really tell the patients one or two variants that are really yeah, pathogenic at the end. So this is the combination of the many variants in combination with environmental factors that contribute to the phenotype. And that makes it really extremely difficult. And most variants that we have identified up to date, these are not the true causing variants. And this is very difficult to explain in a podcast, but <laughs> it's, it's difficult to explain linkage disequilibrium. But um, they are uh, in combination with other variants. So we don't find the true pathogenic variants yet. And therefore, we can't do any routine diagnostics yet. But I'm sure this will change in the next five to 10 years. So potentially, people like me might be able to grow some hair. OK, this is a different step. First, to have the genetics diagnostics done or to have all those in translational way. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's certainly, I mean, at the moment, when I often just tell patients that always remember that God made very few beautiful scalps and all the ugly ones he covered up with hair. There we are. But of course, that idea, that idea of moving on to fixed genes is something that our colleagues in dermatology are very interested in because they say you find the mutation, the variant, you can work out whether it's a missense, a nonsense, a frame shift, a splice site, and so on. But uh, I'm wondering where we're getting to in terms of uh, fixing genes and coming up with some new therapies for these patients. So what are the challenges do you think around fixing genes for these genetic skin diseases? I think in, for hair loss, for these rare genetic hair loss disorders, we are still at the very beginning to even think about any therapy. I think in your area, like epidermolysis bullosa, which is much more severe for the patients, in not in terms of uh, psychological thinking, but in terms of real having infections and having really a very severe uh, phenotype, it's even more important maybe to have a therapy. And yeah, I think you have much more than we have. We are still at the very little uh, yeah, beginning and we can't hardly offer anything, unfortunately. Well, I think it's 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 clear that making an accurate diagnosis ca can take you forward to some low-hanging fruit in terms of therapy. I know you and I are very familiar with our colleague in Israel, uh, Professor Eli Sprecher, and how he's worked on one of those hair loss genes, the corneodesmosin gene for the hypotrichosis simplex. And many of those cases seem to have nonsense variants in corneodesmosin. And he started to use gentamicin, an amino uh, antibiotic, as a read-through. It's a way of stabilizing the messenger RNA and making more protein. And it seems that some of those patients, after gentamicin is put on the scalp, are actually growing new hair. So I guess that underscores the importance of precise diagnostics when you're thinking about available therapeutics. Uh, have you come up with any sort of treatments, genetic treatments for or other treatments for genetic hair loss disorders? No, unfortunately not. We have once with L when we identified the LPAR6 um, gene, um, 
we started to write a patent and we thought there would be some therapy, but still it's very difficult. The ligand is an acid. And if you put an acid on your scalp, it might have other side effects. So actually we didn't try maybe too hard, but we didn't find any company that were really jumping on this patent. And then someday we gave up. <laughs> well, never give up. I mean, you mentioned epidemiologist Belosa and of course, uh, the great story that came out five or six years ago now of gene therapy uh, was our colleague Michele De Luca in Modena in Italy, who managed to put the one of the laminin-332 genes back into keratinocyte holoclone stem cells and did ex vivo gene therapy for a Syrian refugee. And we've seen a number of other cases of this ex vivo gene replacement therapy uh, for such patients, but the numbers are, are very small. And it feels like we've got a lot of preclinical development. We and others are working on gene editing, on base editing and prime editing, which is our fascinating techniques of just being able to correct single nucleotide substitutions, Gs to As, As to Gs and so on. And we can get quite good changes back to normal within the laboratory. The challenge will be moving it on to some delivery system where we can get it safely into the clinic and make sure we're not doing any other harm to other parts of the genome as well. So be, the other genetic disease approach that we're taking as well at the moment is to park the mutant gene itself and to go after the secondary inflammatory pathology that is causing a lot of the patient's symptoms, not only in EB, but in ichthyosis and so on. We're seeing all sorts of new omic characterization of the inflammatory signaling pathways in skin, which is allowing us to think about repurposing drugs from the clinic. So for example, we can take biopsies from patient skin and find abnormalities in Th2 cytokines or other inflammatory itchy cytokines like interleukin-31 or IL-17 types of pathway or IgE. And of course we have biologics and other drugs out there in dermatology clinics that we are trying to repurpose for some of these patients, at least to improve some of the symptoms that are out there. So this field of translational research and early clinical trials, certainly a, a hot topic for dermatology and genetics. Uh, how are things in uh, your part of the world at the moment in terms of clinical trials for some of these genetic diseases? Are you seeing much activity, things happening for the patients that you've characterized or maybe some other diseases in dermatology? Honestly, in dermatology, I don't see too much, but you have to know that I'm in the, working in the clinical genetics unit. So it's very difficult uh, to see all the progress. Um, and it's also very difficult for us to do any trials ourselves. Yeah, it's often the hope, isn't it really? I mean, dermatologists are with the patients all the time and are pushing at those clinical boundaries, trying to try things, sometimes with good science or sometimes with not so much science as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering also about clinical genetics and what the future of that is, because 20 years ago, it felt like all the specialties were pinching all your diseases that we were characterizing and working on ourselves. But what do you think about the future of clinical genetics? What are we going to do in genetics uh, in terms of explaining diseases or really with relevance to dermatology. Is there a long way to go? Everybody says genetics, we're just scratching the surface. So what, are, what do you think are going to be the big things in genetics that might come the way of dermatology? 
this is a really big question. So maybe let, let's start from the scratch. So I think in a few years, nearly everybody will get an exon immediately. We will analyze them. We will maybe find additional disorders. And if they're really relevant, we can tell them the patients or not, if whatever they want to know. Let's just let's just tell our, the listeners what an exome is, uh, because uh, they may be wondering uh, what it is. But it's really just sequencing all the exons of the coding genes that we know about with a little bit of flanking intron. So it's it's a bit like watching the highlights of a, a World Cup match. You see all the all the goal mouth action and so on, all the vital good bits, I suppose. And it's good baseline data. Yeah, that's really true. And just one question back, maybe, because we are right now really excited because our hypothreshold, we have about 300 hypothreshosis patients, but only about the half has been elucidated. So we still think even therapy is very important, but that the genetics part is still very exciting. And by looking more into the genetic data, we see more and more that even, for example, carriers of a mutation have also mild symptoms. Or the, the spectrum is be much, might be much broader than we thought up to date. Today we thought, okay, if you have a recessive disorder, the parents carry one mutation each and they will not show any symptoms. And this is not true what we can see now. And even some higher frequency mutations where you don't expect any effect um, on the patients because the mutation is so frequent in the population, we see that they have some or say, yeah, the patients have some symptoms out of that. So I think we have to think broader and that even mild mutations or that mutations can make symptoms in some patients and in some not, even if it's the same mutation and we still don't know why. So this spectrum will be broader and broader in the future. And I think we have to get used that it's not so it's a simple way, mutation, and then you have a disorder. I think that's right. I mean, I think there's so much that we are still discovering. I mean, everybody might think that the human genome had been completely sequenced, but it was only this year, 2022, that additional bits of the genome were identified, particularly near the middle bits and the end bits, the centromeres and the telomeres, and another thousand genes or so were discovered. Uh, but as you say, we're discovering that much of the junk uh, that we thought was in the genome is nothing like junk. It's actually uh, part of uh, what we might call the regulome, the way that the genes are regulated. And indeed, some of it is actually translated into protein. So we have this vision that we can sort out all these genetic diseases, but we don't yet have the ammunition or the guns, it would seem, uh, to get right to the bottom of it. But I think what you say about phenotyping is very important, isn't it? Because this is something that we as clinicians can also do and try and tie that up with genetic information to really understand conditions in more detail. Uh, I think it's got some way to go. So if you, if you could make a prediction for the next couple of years or so, what do you think is going to be happening in clinical genetics that might have some relevance to dermatology? Is there something where you think you're excited about a bit of emerging science or something that you think might foster general interest? 
Yeah, what we are really excited about is precision medicine. That we can do some genotyping or variant typing, and then we can offer a specific medicine for the patient. But also, this is still at the very beginning, and I think we have to be very careful. There are a lot of tests offered from the um, from the yeah from companies, and it's still very difficult to interpret them. And just if you buy your whole exome or your whole genome as a patient and or as a normal person, yeah, it's very difficult to look into res into the results yourself. I think that's right. I mean, if we were, you and I were just to get our exome sequence, um, we would both be carriers of several mutant genes, wouldn't we really? Probably at least 150 of our 20 or 1,000 genes or so would have some particular error in them that we'd be uh, concerned about. And so I guess we ought to probably think that new information is still required, new technology is required if we're going to get there. So I, I think probably we should just about wrap up our conversation. I hope that you and I are gonna hook up at some meeting again soon, where we can start talking more about lots of exciting things that are happening in the world of genetics and coming into dermatology. Um, but uh, it's been wonderful having a chat uh, today uh, with you and um, uh, I look forward to that and uh, also uh, seeing what gene you're working on at the moment I'm sure it's very exciting it's very exciting thanks yeah it was very nice talking to you John and I hope the audience had some fun with us thanks a lot bye 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 Applying for your DV membership allows you to become part of a vibrant international community of professionals and gives you access to a variety of benefits and tools to deepen your knowledge while remaining up to date in your latest findings in your specialty. You're just two steps away from becoming an EDV member. Apply today. Visit eadv.org if you wish to learn more. Thank you for listening and until the next episode, take care of your skin.